Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters, and Walters would like to take the last few games of the season to thank all Nationals fans for supporting Walters this year. Walters knows it's been difficult with mask mandates, social distancing, and an awkward transition from contending to rebuilding. Here's to 2022 and the hope for more fun times together. Stay safe, Nats fans. We'll see you next year. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rodgers checks the runner. He throws. Swinging a long drive. Left center field. This one's crushed. Way back it goes, and it is long gone. Six rows deep into the Brewhouse red seats. Hunter Renfro, home run number 31. And the Red Sox, with one big swing, take a 3-0 lead here in the sixth inning. And the pitch swung on. Hit high in the air, shallow right. It's playable for Renfro in, under it waiting, and he makes the catch. And the Red Sox take game one of the series. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, October 2nd, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, as bad as the Nationals 2021 season has been, it is ending with the Nats having a major say-so in a major race, the ultra-tight American League wildcard race, Yankees, Boston, Seattle, and Toronto, four teams vying for two spots. The Nats on Friday night begin the final series of their season, a three-game series against the Red Sox at Nationals Park. Announced attendance of 32,521, very healthy crowd by 2021 standards. This was a game that actually felt like a playoff game at times, but this was a game that was yet another Nationals loss. 4-2 the final, and that's now 65-95 and 95 on the season. This is, for those who don't know, the third worst season that the Nats have had since coming to D.C. Only the back-to-back 100 loss seasons of 08 and 09 have been worse. So yeah, there is that. But there also were bright spots on Friday night, including Juan Soto with one of the greatest box score lines that you'll ever see. 0 for 1 with four walks. He gets on base four times. The batting average actually goes down. But Mark, we are really making our way into increasingly rarefied air with what Juan Soto is doing. Oh, yes, Al. And it's funny, I was sitting on this stat for a while and thought, well, it probably won't happen until the end of the weekend. And then lo and behold, it happened tonight because he walked four times. That's 144 now on the season walks for Juan Soto. And the only other player in this century to do that is a guy by the name of Barry Bonds, who did it multiple times, most recently in 2004. 
So, yeah, some of this is they're not pitching to him. I mean, they clearly pitched around him a couple of times. They also went after him a couple of times in this game. I mean, he had a ninth inning. It was a full count. He took some borderline pitches for the walk. So, I mean, it's not like they are completely uh, – there are no intentional walks. And and some of these at-bats, they are trying to get him out. And he's just not going to chase on anything. It's a pretty remarkable thing. He reached base four times again. It's the 26th time he's done that this season. Only Barry Bonds and Babe Ruth have done it more than 26 times in a season in Major League history. So these are the names that he's associated with now. It is remarkable. And I get that it's maybe not quite the full production that everyone would love. I mean, we'd love to see him actually hit a ball really hard and hit it over the fence and do something to maybe change the outcome of the game. But I continue to be so impressed with his patience because, you know, especially in a game like this, you know he wants to make something happen. And he's just not going to come out of his comfort zone. He's not going to force the issue. Credit to him. He drew four more walks. He's at 144, and he's got two more games to pad that number even more. Yeah, I mean, this series is going to serve as a lot of things. But from a Nationals perspective, maybe as much as anything, this is an exclamation mark on a truly special offensive season. Like, we knew that Juan was having a good season. We had the conversations about, well, it's a good season for anybody else, but for Juan, you know, lack of power at times, is it really like the best of Juan Soto we've seen? But as the season has gone on, it really has become the best of Juan Soto we've seen. Like, this is the best season in terms of like the regular season that he's had as a national. And, you know, just look at like some of the advanced stuff going into games on Friday. Juan Soto entered play on Friday, number one among all major league position players in the two major versions of war, the baseball reference version and the fan graphs version. Number one among all major league players in terms of OPS plus. Number one among all major league players and on base percentage and walks drawn. I mean, it's really incredible what he's done here. And You know, people can try to knock it from a standpoint of, well, the Nationals are a bad team this season. But, you know, I know from from my standpoint, that doesn't matter. Like this MVP case, he's really making it here. I don't know if he's going to win it, but man, he has done maybe more than anyone over the last month in baseball to solidify a legitimate MVP case. Here's something I was thinking about, and I get that people are going to say, oh, well, he's doing all this, especially in the second half of the season on a team that's totally out of the race. I could almost flip that on its head and say that that's actually more admirable because at a time when you could just pack it in and not come to these games and not bring every at bat with the same level of intensity and maybe to say, ah, you know what, I'm going to start swinging out of pitches out of the zone and try just to hit home runs. He's not doing that. I mean, he is fully engaged in every single at bat. It doesn't matter what the score is. doesn't matter how many games out the Nationals are. And I think there's something admirable about that. Uh, especially at his age, to still be that into it all the way through it and not give in and just keep taking his walks. And then when he does get a pitch to hit, still doing something with it. Under the circumstances, I I think that's incredibly impressive for him to do that. And then the other thing here, if there's one thing that we can say that, oh, well, it hasn't been his best year, it's because the slugging is down. Well, so I'm looking at it right now. He's slugging 541. That's still sixth best in the National League, you know? Yeah. Is that as high as he's been in the past? No. But it's still sixth best in the National League. So let's get rid of the notion that this was somehow a disappointing year for Juan Soto. The final numbers in the end are phenomenal across the board, and some of them are historic. Yeah, he has had really one of the great seasons any Nationals player has ever had. I think if you're ranking the best seasons any Nationals position player has ever had, you could argue this is number two. We'll see where the numbers wind up. I mean, I don't think you put it past Bryce Harper in 2015, 
Ryan Zimmerman had some monster seasons when the Nats were really bad, like, you know, 08, 09, that territory. This might be number two, you know, and and it has kind of snuck up on some people. But no, like, this is really amazing what this guy is doing. So Soto gets on base four times on Friday night. Josh Bell gets on base four times on Friday night. But the Nationals only score two runs. If you're caught up in, like, the outcome of the game and how the game actually went down, man, was this a frustrating game. So many opportunities for the Nats to bust this game open and spoil things for the Boston Red Sox. And the Nats were just unable to do that. They do get some hits late in the game. Alcides Escobar does have a two-out solo homer in the bottom of the seventh inning. But you had some big spots. I mean, K-Bert Ruiz, bottom of the fourth, single up the middle to load the bases with nobody out. The Nats failed to score in that inning as the uh, the bases loaded thing continued offensively. So just two runs in a game in which uh, you certainly could have scored many more runs. Yeah, there were some golden opportunities. And unfortunately, it kept coming down to the six, seven, eight hitters in this game, which were Jordy Mercer, Carter Keboom, and Andrew Stevenson. Mercer was starting in place of Luis Garcia, who got the night off against the lefty. Stevenson was starting in place of Yadiel Hernandez, who was scratched. He was in the lineup originally. They scratched him. He had some kind of dental procedure earlier in the day and I guess was still recovering from it and couldn't start, although he did pinch hit late. So those are not the guys you want up in the spots. Now, Mercer homered late in the game. Stevenson doubled and gave them a chance late in the game. That was good. Keeboom had a bad game. And this is growing. It's adding to his list of these. He's not finishing strong at all. And that's not going to help his cause going into the offseason. But this felt like a lot of games that we've seen where the boys battle. Some of them are getting on base. They keep putting themselves in positions. And then with the bases loaded, especially, they cannot convert. And given chances in the bottom of the eighth, Ryan Zerman has a chance to tie the game. He strikes out. In the bottom of the ninth, Cabert Ruiz has a chance to win the game. And he pops out to shallow right field. So They had their chances, and uh, unfortunately, they just this year have not delivered enough of those chances to actually make something out of it. Yeah, that Ryan Zimmerman spot was tailor-made. He comes up as a pinch hitter, bottom of the eighth, Andrew Stevenson on second, two outs, Nats down 4-2, and Zim unfortunately strikes out on four pitches. Like we've said, we don't know if this is the final series of his career, but he got a nice ovation when he came to bat, and uh, unfortunately unable to come through in that spot. So I mentioned Alcides Escobar with a two-out solo homer. He also had a vintage Alcides Escobar hit earlier in the game. Bottom of the fifth, a two-out broken bat single into left field on a one-two pitch, just like the perfect Alcides Escobar moment. With Mercer starting over Luis Garcia, so I wanted to find out about that. So it's not like Luis is hurt or anything. I mean, they just had a day off. Why wouldn't they give Garcia the start here? Like, why are we going with Mercer? I know he hit a home run, but He also had a bad strikeout, struck out on six pitches with the bases loaded, nobody out, bottom of the fourth. What was the thinking here in resting Luis Garcia in the final series of the season? Yeah, we didn't like directly ask it. Probably somebody should have and and just didn't. I would imagine it was a case of just wanting to give him one more day off probably, and this was the one to do it against the lefty, and, and so Mercer was in there. Now, maybe he's dealing with something, I don't know, but I don't remember anything happening on Wednesday that would have affected him. So I don't think there's anything physical going on there. We'll see on Saturday if he's back in or not, especially once Hernandez was out of the lineup as well. It did leave the bottom half of this lineup looking really weak. And sure enough, like I just said, those spots were the ones that kept coming up with a chance to do something and could not come through. So, I mean, Jordy Mercer should not be a number six hitter in a big league game. I know he homered, you're right, but he that strikeout bases loaded was really costly. You just got to get the bat on the ball in that spot, at least get one run home. So not a good situation. Like I said, Keeboom, that was a really rough game. He had multiple opportunities 
with multiple runners on base and scoring position and didn't even get the ball out of the infield. Yeah. I mean, Davey had Keeboom batting behind Mercer. Keeboom was in the seventh spot, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left five men on base with Andrew Stevenson as a starting left fielder. So he has a double in the game, bottom of the eighth, a two-out ground rule double to center field. And in the bottom of the seventh, two really nice defensive plays. You know, I know it's not always the case when you make a nice defensive play that you were actually good on that play. So watching it live, I don't know if you saw it differently, if maybe you got late breaks on these things, or if in fact these were truly impressive catches. But uh, he makes a leaping over-the-shoulder catch of a Kike Hernandez line drive for the first out in the inning. And then he makes a leaping catch, Stevenson does, against the left field wall of doing a 360 spin on a Rafael Devers one-out flyout with runners on first and second. High target for Ruiz, the 0-2. Hit in the air to left field deep. Stevenson back on this one to the warning track, turning around at the fence. He leaps, and he caught it! Banging into the fence, he caught it! The throw into third as the runners get back. You're not supposed to do that. Turn your back to the baseball. He does it, and he makes the catch. So good for Stevenson for coming through on that play. Not really how you're supposed to do it, but he did it. No, these were not necessarily textbook plays like that. I want to say that the um, the second one going back to the wall, that that one was a tougher play. So I'm gonna you know I'm gonna allow it sort of the twisting around part of it. First one, maybe not as much. And then he also had a coming in diving catch in the eighth inning. He had a crazy couple of innings there in left field. And I mean, I think we can say Yadiel Hernandez probably doesn't make those plays. <laughs> probably he's not, out no. there instead. So Stevenson, he, he's such an intriguing guy because you see enough there that you say, boy, this guy's a gamer. He plays great defense. He can work a good at bat. He's so good off the bench and he can do things in big moments. He just hasn't been able to put it all together to the extent that you say he should be playing, you know, on an everyday basis or anything close to it. And it's unfortunate. He had his chances this year. There were times that they got a really good look at him and they said, hey, go show us that you're ready to be an everyday player. And it just didn't happen. I feel like his future here is going to be as a fourth outfielder, but he does a lot of good things. It's it's hard not to like him just because he plays the game hard all the time. Even the one of the at-bats with the bases loaded, the little dribbler to second, he almost beat it out. It took a great play from the second baseman to get him on that. So, I mean, the guy goes all out all the time, and, and teammates love him for it, coaches love him for it, and I think fans love him for it too. I, you just wish he came through a few more times at the plate because I think he could be quite a valuable player for them, and unfortunately he doesn't do it quite enough. And so he ends up being just a, a fourth or fifth outfielder. He's got the great walk-up music, too, the great country song. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Stevenson, if you're being objective and fair about things, he's been Victor Robles as a batter this season. Stevenson's OPS on the year is 609. Victor's at the major league level is 605. So, I mean, that's what you're grappling with. You know, you think about the Nats, they have guys who, like, are really good in backup roles, but those guys have been thrust into starting positions this year. Like, Andrew Stevenson and Yadiel Hernandez, each as a fourth outfielder, is pretty good. Like, as, as fourth outfielders go, that's not bad. But the problem is those guys have had to be utilized as starting outfielders this year. Like you look at some of the pitchers, and we'll get to Josh Rogers momentarily, but like Rogers and Paolo Espino as number six, number seven starters, not bad. But the fact that they've had to be like number two and number three starters, well, that's the problem. That's not how you're supposed to draw it up. But yeah, we do see some good stuff from Stevenson, and uh, he had some good moments for sure in this game on Friday night. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. 
Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Roger sets. Now the pitch, and he pops it up. And they'll let it drop. Rogers picks it up. Throws to second. Now the relay to Mercer at first, and they do it. They let it drop and turn the double play on the popped-up bunt. We've been calling for someone to do that for how long? <laughs> well, the problem, the thing for the Red Sox, Rodriguez didn't run. Yep. He's got to run. Well, with Josh Rogers, so another game in which he's impressive. It is a second consecutive game in which he falters the third time through the lineup. But maybe the most notable thing is what Davey Martinez said to you guys during Davey's postgame presser that Josh Rogers will be competing for a rotation spot in 2022. You know, that's not shocking news, but I think it's telling that the manager makes it a point to say that during his postgame press conference. So Rogers in this 4-2 loss to the Red Sox at Nats Park on Friday night, four runs in six innings, but once again, was better than that final line indicated. He tossed five scoreless innings, but then gave up four runs in the top of the sixth, during which he gave up a leadoff single by Xander Bogart, a one-out first pitch single by J.D. Martinez, and then back-to-back home runs. One-out three-run homer by Hunter Renfro, and a one-out first pitch solo homer by Bobby Dahlbeck for a 4-0 Red Sox lead. The homer by Renfro uh, was a bomb to left center, projected 423 feet for StatCast. This was similar to what happened to Josh in his last outing, the 9-2 loss at Cincinnati on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Josh in that game, three runs, four and two-thirds innings, but he tossed four scoreless innings before giving up the three runs in the bottom of the fifth. I mean, overall, it's hard to hate what Josh Rogers did for the Nats in September slash October. Contract selected from AAA Rochester on September 4th. He gives the Nats six starts, pitches well for the most part over those six starts. It's really difficult to find fault with much of what Josh Rogers has done over the last month. Yeah, I agree, especially when on that first start, you you set the bar at, okay, what do we expect 
you could get from him. And if I told you six starts, he's going to have a 328 ERA, a 1.29 whip. And I actually, I think this is maybe the most impressive of them all. He just barely came short of averaging six innings per start. For this team, that's a remarkable because nobody was able to do that for them this year. That's a workhorse. That's absolutely a workhorse. So, yeah, he absolutely earned the right to come next spring and compete for a job. Now, you know, it's six starts, so you don't want to read too much into it and say this is who he really is. And I think it's a little bit telling that against the better lineups he faced there at the end, the Reds and the Red Sox, he was unable to sustain it, you know, a third time through the order. But we're not talking about somebody that they're envisioning as a number two or number three starter. You're talking about somebody who's probably competing for the fifth spot in the rotation and anything more than that they get from him would be fantastic. But it's hard not to like what you saw, both in the performance and in just the energy, the enthusiasm, the attitude. Everybody loved the guy. How about the uh, purposely drop pop-up bunt for the double play? That was great. I love that. Everybody loved that. So he brings something to the table that not a lot of their guys have. I have no idea what he's going to amount to in the long run. But I would certainly not give up on him right now. I would bring him to camp and give him every opportunity to win a job next spring. Yeah, and given the state of the Nats pitching, it's possible he's in the season opening rotation. Now, I mean, I wouldn't frame that as like a good thing. That's not an endorsement of where the Nats are organizationally right now, but it's a credit to him. And, you know, you look at like Josh Rogers' career, 11th round pick of the Yankees in the 2015 draft out of Louisville. He gets dealt to the Orioles in the Zach Britton trade July of 18. He gets discarded by the Orioles. The pitching starved Orioles said no thank you to Josh Rogers. This is a guy who twice has undergone Tommy John surgery. The most recent one was in July 2019. He had not pitched in a major league regular season game since 2019. He gets called up by the Nats in early September, and he does a good job over these six starts. So what does it mean? We don't know. I mean, he did have success against some bad teams, you know, Miami Marlins twice, Pittsburgh Pirates, things of that nature. So, you know, you have to sort of read that into the record. But I don't think anybody would be shocked I mean, if he's in the rotation to begin next year. Like, we don't know what that rotation is going to look like, but just thinking about things logically, if, say, Steven Strasburg isn't good to go to begin the season, if, say, the Nats don't have Cade Cavalli up at the major league level to begin the season, if, say, the Nats, you know, don't go bonkers in free agency this offseason, it's plausible that Josh Rogers is among those first five starting pitchers for the Nats next year. Yeah, and you could even make the argument that even if the top four all like pan out the way that you hope they would, that there's still at least one spot up for grabs and that he has the right to to win that job in spring training. So I would approach it as he should come to camp competing with others for potentially one spot. But if others like Strasburg and Joe Ross aren't able to make it or Cavalli needs to be sent down, whatever the case may be, then he would be high on the list to then make the rotation as a result of that. Now, he's got options left, so they could send him to AAA, and that's a nice thing to have as well whenever they need him. I mean, he's going to pitch for them in 2022 in one way or another. It's just a matter of, is he there on opening day or is it further down the road? But like I said, impossible not to be impressed with what he did and impossible not to just like the guy because he was such a breath of fresh air here at a time when they really needed it because it was easy just to get down in the dumps watching the same guys go through the same struggles every single night. For me personally, it was a lot of fun to watch him make these six starts. Just that body rocking thing that he does is a treat to watch. Exit question on Josh Rogers, more likely to be in the Nats season opening rotation next year, Eric Fetty or Josh Rogers? Oh, why do you put me on the spot like this, Al? I will say Rogers because I think that there is a chance that Fetty could be out altogether. And 
more so a product of his lack of options, the fact his salary will start going up as an arbitration guy, and the hope that they would both be healthier and maybe add another veteran to the mix that he may get squeezed out. I could see him coming to spring training as sort of the, well, we need to keep him around in case other things go wrong, but I would be willing to bet right now that he's not in their ideal plan for the rotation for next year, that that's more of a, like, in case of emergency break glass, we stick with Fetty. So uh, unfortunately, I, I have a hunch that this could be the end of the road for him. That the answer is an automatically Fetty tells you everything you need to know. Like just the fact that you can say that and nobody bats an eye tells you everything you need to know. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm speculating here. I don't know. No, but it makes sense. What you're saying makes sense. It's not some far-fetched scenario that you just outlined there. It was funny to me with the Nats bullpen on Friday night. So four relievers are utilized by Davey. And I look at the end of the game. I'm like, wow, they combined for three scoreless innings. It didn't feel that way watching the game, but they did do it. Andres Machado, Alberto Baldonado, Patrick Murphy, and Sean Nolan combined for three scoreless innings. Now, Machado begins at top of the seventh, lasts for just three batters, issues back-to-back one-out walks, uh, Kyle Schwarber and Xander Bogarts, and then gets yanked by Davey. Davey, you could tell, is losing his patience with these guys. He's like, get out. I don't want to see this anymore. Baldonado, top of the seventh, faces two batters, gets two flyouts. Okay. Patrick Murphy does toss a scoreless top of the eighth. Then Sean Nolan gives you a scoreless top of the ninth despite issuing two walks. So four walks over three innings from Nats relievers, but they are three shutout innings. I feel like the official score needs to double check that. Are you sure they didn't give up any runs over those three innings? But uh, no, the bullpen actually was effective on Friday night. Well, they were effective because in spite of the four walks and an error on Josh Bell, they also had, those were the innings that had the three Andrew Stevenson starred plays, at least in my scorebook, and that helped a lot. And you also had Caber Ruiz throwing out a runner trying to take second base. So the defense helped make that for that bullpen because I would not qualify just on the way they looked and the way they pitched. I would not qualify that as a, as a very encouraging, upbeat performance from the Nats bullpen. But effective, yes, they kept putting zeros up and at least they gave the lineup a chance to mount something late in the game. All right. Well, speaking of relievers, we had the media awards handed out on Friday, and you were on the field presenting those. No surprise, certainly with two of the awards, uh, Juan Soto being named the uh, Nationals. What's the the official name of the award that Soto got is the Player of the Year. Player of the Year. Josh Bell gets the Good Guy Award. I don't think anybody has an issue with that. But it's Kyle Finnegan who gets the Pitcher Award, the Pitcher of the Year Award. Now, you've talked about this. You have to be on the Nats currently to get the award. That's why Max Scherzer didn't get it. I do want to share, though, with you this email we got. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Henry Marks writes, all of this talk of Paolo Espino and Mark, you let Finnegan win Nationals Pitcher of the Year, a travesty. Sure, Finnegan has stepped up, but I feel tricked, backstabbed, and quite honestly, bamboozled. Please do better, says Henry. Uh, so Finnegan over the secret weapon, Paolo. Man, this says all you need to know about the depths to which we have sunk when it comes to the Nationals and the pitching. But why do you think Finnegan got the award and not our guy, Paolo? Okay, now let's, for the record, let's point out that I am one of many people who voted on this. So I alone did not decide who was going to win these various awards. It was a panel of voters. I'm going to also uh, make two other points here. You mentioned one of them. We were told that there had to be players on the current roster, so it could not have been somebody who was traded. So in other words, like if you asked me over the course of the season, who was the best pitcher on the Nationals? And that's Max Scherzer, of course, but they weren't going to give an award to somebody who's no longer with the team. So that severely limited what the options were. The second point is 
the ballots were due about two weeks ago during the last homestand. I would have preferred that it went more down to the wire, but they needed names to get the plaques made and have them in in time for them. So that was the reason behind it. And as it turns out, and I'm thinking back to when I submitted my ballot, I want to say that it was right after I submitted mine that Kyle Finnegan had two blown saves during that last homestand. And at the time, Paolo Espino, I'm looking at it right now, had an ERA uh, around 418 before he then bounced back and had a good one that brought it back under the four mark. So I considered them both. Let's be honest here. These are not great choices to pick from. Neither one of these is somebody that you would say clearly was had a great season or was the pitcher of the year for the team. At that time, I was looking at Finnegan with an ERA of 2.61 and nine saves and I believe 11 opportunities. I think it was nine of 10 since he took over the job. And to me, he was the one guy from the bullpen that had kind of consistently become effective. Now, since then, he struggled somewhat. He'd been a little better the last couple times out. And Palos had a couple decent starts, and that's maybe helped him look better. So if we voted now, I might have a different opinion. But as of two weeks ago, I felt like Finnegan was slightly ahead of our boy Palo Espino, taking nothing away from Palo. But deep down, I think we can all acknowledge that this was unfortunately a year in which there really was no pitcher of the year for this team. This was a bad year for the Nationals pitching staff. It's brutal. The fact that you can't even make any kind of an argument for anybody else tells you all you need to know. Like Corbin, no way. Fetty, no way. Strasburg, no way. Scherzer's not on the team anymore. I mean, you know, Josh Rogers only made six starts. It's like, you really don't have anyone else you could have looked at. Not a single one of the other relievers could you have looked at and identified as a candidate. I mean, for the record, so Paolo, 109 and two-thirds innings, Finnegan, 65. Paolo, ERA, 427. Finnegan, 346. Paolo, 121 whip. Finnegan, 146. But whatever, man. Like, the point is, this is what you were left to decide on. Espino versus Finnegan. We need to remember this moving forward. So when the Nats get good again and the pitching is back to being good again, we can reflect upon 2021 and the debate that was who is the Nationals pitcher of the year, Paolo Espino or Kyle Finnegan. Like that tells you all you need to know. It's funny. You had the ultimate slam dunk in Soto. I would imagine that was unanimous, right? And then you had the ultimate like, good God, which way do we go in Espino versus Finnegan? You talk about like a juxtaposition there. Uh, man, that says it all. Yeah. And I know we don't care about pitchers wins, but I think it's kind of telling this team does not have a double digit pitcher and wins for the season. That's usually a sign of a bad team. And it's something that hasn't happened to this team, I think since like 2007 or eight, that that was the case. So that's telling as well. Yeah, just a bad, bad year for the pitching staff. And it was really across the board. And it is the number one thing that has to change next year if they are going to start to make any kind of significant strides. Now, I'll ask you this. We were debating this in the press box, uh, especially as Josh Rogers had the shutout going into the sixth inning. How many starts would he have needed to make to like seriously be considered for it? I said at least 10. And even that's kind of pushing it a little bit. But maybe at 10 starts, you could make the case for it. But at six, I don't feel like that was a valid case for him. Yeah, I mean, if you go by innings, right, 10 could maybe get you to 60 innings. Finnegan's at 65, so I think that's reasonable. I mean, if he was, like, outstanding over eight starts, then maybe. But, yeah, you can't say that he was outstanding over these six starts. He was good. He was nice, especially over the first four. 
But yeah, this is where we're at. Like, this is what it is in 2021. I remember years ago, the team currently known as the Washington football team was so bad one year that the center, Casey Robach, got named the Offensive Player of the Year at the following <laughs> year's Welcome Home Luncheon. And, you know, Casey Robach, swell guy, no problem with him. But, like, on no team should the center ever be the Offensive Player of the Year, but that was the case. And this just reminds me so much of that. Like, it's something that should stick with you so that you appreciate the good times when we're finally back to having those good times. Well, you tell us what you think. You can always uh, hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well. Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, do we know yet the starter for Sunday, or is that still unknown? Still unknown. Palo Espino is one option. It's going to depend on who all they use over the next couple days, whether the Red Sox are still playing for something or not. I was told there's a chance it could be somebody being called up from the minors, depending again on the situation. I wouldn't get too excited about this. I don't think we're looking at Cade Cavalli. Anybody worried about that? Might be somebody else. But we're going to see how it goes on Saturday, and that'll help determine it. And I I think a lot does maybe have to do with whether the Red Sox clinch on Saturday or not. And if they haven't, and and I'm trying to think now, but we don't know what the result of the Mariners game is yet as we record this. I suppose if the Mariners lose, the Red Sox are one game up. So by Saturday, they could clinch if they win and Seattle loses. So maybe Sunday's game doesn't mean anything. That could change the dynamics a little bit. If it does mean something, if they're still playing for it, I feel like Davey's going to put his best foot forward and try to make it as competitive and try to win the game. And so to me, that probably means Palo for as far as he can go. It may not be a full 100-pitch start, but I would imagine he could try to give him four, maybe five innings. I was thinking about this. Do you think they'd call up Seth Romero for Sunday? Um, probably not him. I heard a different name. I'm not going to throw things out there because I don't want to speculate on something that I don't know for sure. And I don't even know what the circumstances would be that it could be him. But Romero was not the name that was mentioned to me as a possibility. I don't know. It's a tough spot because there's an argument to be made for, hey, let's get a look at somebody who could have a future with them. There's also service time issues. And like I said, I think the real question here is what is the significance of the game? And you do have to respect that. Like if you are the Seattle Mariners or the Toronto Blue Jays and they need the Red Sox to lose on Sunday, how are you feeling if the Nationals are putting some kid out there or doing a bullpen game or whatever just to kind of get through it? Like, no, you want them to give their best effort to try to win the game. And I think Davey Martinez respects that. I don't think he would do something that was against that idea. Now, if it's all clinched and nothing matters, it could be a different story. With this Nats pitching staff, I don't know that you can differentiate between putting your best foot forward and tanking it. I mean, I'm serious. Like, what is the difference this year between the Nats going with a bullpen game and the Nats calling someone up from AAA and starting that guy? Like, calling up the guy from AAA might be the worst option. Like, we have no idea. Maybe going with a bullpen game ends up working out beautifully. Like, I find it funny that that this is such a concern for Davey. They're all bad, Davey. The pitching staff has been terrible this year. Like, come on, man. Now, wait a minute. We could Maybe they can get through the game with the two pitcher of the year candidates, Paolo and then Finnegan. Just let the two of them finish it off. That would be nice. That would be fitting. Please no more six reliever parades with 18 walks in the game. That would be nice. Interesting start for Josiah Gray on Saturday. Looking forward to that. Hopefully he can end his season on a high note. We shall see. You can get yourself a secret weapon t-shirt. Hopefully we do see the secret weapon at some point here over the course of the rest of the season. Go to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.com. Dot square dot site. We also do want to thank everyone who has contributed to the cause uh, via donating to covering some of the production costs for the podcast. Uh, you can contribute by going to that site, natschatpodcast.square.com. 
Dodd-Site. All Nationals radio highlights on that chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast, and we're going to leave you with a prediction for 2022. Chip Lazenby of Hawaii. Take it away. Hey, Al, Mark, and Tim. This is Chip from Kaneohe, Hawaii, with a 2022 prediction. Going a little bit overly optimistic here, but definitely see Luis Garcia, Cabert Ruiz, and Josiah Gray just continuing their end-of-season 2021 production and really just turning that into what we're going to see um, is you know, long-term valuable pieces moving forward. Being a little bit realistic, um, don't see much from Strauss or Corbin next year and also see Carter Keeboom fading just based off kind of what we've seen going into this year. But the most important final two predictions I have, one are Dave and Charlie are freed and allowed to go back on the road, which as someone who listens to 80% of the games via the radio broadcast is... (laughs) (laughs) just something that personally kills me. So hopefully they're liberated. And my second most important prediction is that the Nats Chat podcast continues to thrive and bring daily joy to Nats fans all across the the DMV, where primary number of our, I'm sure your listeners are, but of course, as you guys have noted, all all around the globe, (laughs) all around the country and the world. So thanks so much for all the effort you put in. It's, It's just greatly, greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys.